Welcome in, everybody, to a more energetic opening. How about that? This is Sad Times. Don't turn it off. It's Sad Times. You came to the right place. My name is Kevin. I am the host. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have been here before, welcome back. Have a seat uh, and get ready for an incredible story from one of our wonderful guests. If you're new, let me give you a little primer on how Sad Times works. Each week, we have a kind and generous guest on who talks about traumatic, difficult times in their life, tells stories from their life when they were uh, working to overcome adversity, working to deal with trauma. And also, often, as is today, we are going to talk to a mental health professional who has used some of the traumatic events in their life that has helped shape the work, the very valuable work that they are doing. So that's what sad times is. We're not trying to solve the problem, diagnose the problem, or judge the problem. We're simply allowing the story to be told so that wherever you may be listening, uh, you could hear something and say, oh my goodness, I thought I was the only one who went through that, or oh, I didn't know that, I feel a little bit less alone. That's the goal of sad times. We do have a uh, we do have a podcast, it's this. We do have a website. It's www.sadtimespodcast.com. Check it out. You can see all the episodes there. Uh, we have a blog. We have other things that websites have. Go check it out, uh, please. And of course, uh, subscribe and you find Sad Times wherever podcasts magically appear on your devices. All right. And of course, because we do have a podcast, we do have to pay the bills. And so let's make sure that we get to this week's sponsor. So this week's episode of Sad Times is brought to you by the Chili's marketing slogan, more life happens here. Ever wonder why you, your life felt so defeated and without meaning? If you have, may I suggest trying to go and sit at a Chili's and have some chicken crispers? Because you see, more life happens there. And life is in all capital letters, capital L-I-F-E, which makes me think that this might be where the cure for cancer lives. That's the Chili's marketing slogan. More life happens here. Forget the afterlife. Try Chili's. All right, great. And as always, we would not exist without our sponsors, so please use the code F-A-K-E at checkout. That's F-A-K-E at checkout. All right, the bills are paid. Brent, Wade, don't look at me like that. All right, and we're going to get going. So... I will let you know, we we have a wonderful guest today who I'm about to introduce. Just a, a bit of a warning, there will be likely some discussion of sexual abuse, so please take care while listening. All right, uh, with all of that being said, let's bring in our guest, Merle. Merle, how you doing, man? Great, thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, great to have you. Now, my first question uh, is, when was the last time you were in a Chili's? This is the I virtually never eat out, so it's been a long, long time. time. <laughs> I was in one in an airport the other day, and I saw that slogan, and I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" But all right, it's obviously working. I think I just got ten people to go to Chili's. So, uh, where are you today, sir? Where are you uh, recording from? In sunny Ventura, California. Well, rub it in. What now? Where is Ventura? It is the most northern part of Los Angeles. I'm right between Santa Barbara and uh, L.A. Uh, have you been, as of recording, have you been getting a ton of rain? Or did that miss your oh, area? Yeah, about 8, 10 inches. Is that all? It's Oh, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hope you're staying safe. Um, yeah, I didn't leave, the, leave my place for like four days. And I finally got to take a walk last night. Because I, I typically walk about... 
five to 10 miles a day. Oh, wow. And so I was about to go stir crazy. <laughs> understandably, understandably so. So they uh, did it flood pretty bad there? Well, yeah, they had over 300 mudslides in the, in Los Angeles. There's flooding all over the state from San Francisco down. Where I am in Ventura, we didn't get, other than just a lot of rain, we're fine. But around me, uh, further out, there's a lot of devastation. There's millions of dollars worth of damage. This was quite a mess. Jeez. Well, uh, I am glad that you got to get out after four days, especially if you're used to uh, – I know that if I don't get to exercise for, for a time being, I go very nuts. Very, yeah, very nuts. starting to climb the walls. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I go so nuts, I start doing aerobics on YouTube. That's how fucking crazy I go. Um, so – and Merle, before we get into your story, I want to I want to talk about a couple websites where people and we're going to talk about this. But you have a website called unspokenboundaries.com. Can you talk a little bit about what people will find when they go there? Yeah, Unspoken Boundaries is uh, a workshop, actually a series of workshops that I developed back pre-COVID. I used to do a live in-person all-day workshop <laughs> and then COVID changed the world. Uh, completely, and we're not going back because yep. everybody's just doing it online now. And so I eventually uh, went into the deep end of the pool and created seven steps to powerful boundaries. Uh, so I teach people a lot about boundaries because when people talk about boundaries, they're mostly talking about what that person's doing. Mm. It's about them. It's not about you. And boundaries all come back to you. And so it starts, we learn about boundaries in childhood. I call it the dance of intimacy. Our parents teach us how we're supposed to be in the world. And we assume that that's because it's happening in our family. That's how the rest of the world works, which is not generally true. <laughs> yes. They, <laughs> so and, you have to. And we're going to learn very much here in a moment how, how, unlo how unlike your childhood was to, to a lot of the rest of the world. Yes. And so you have to. So the first step is just about looking at the boundaries you learn from your family. Uh, step two is just a basic ex uh, exploration of what boundaries are, typical boundaries, like cultural boundaries, uh, how you greet somebody in one culture is completely different than another culture. And so, and that's just such a great example of boundaries. So the, the each boundary has, each country has its own dance of intimacy around greeting. Right. Uh, and then uh, step three, I, which is the heart of the workshop, is I teach about energetic boundaries. We're all energy. We're all atoms. And once you really learn how that impacts boundaries and how uh, your, your atoms making contact with another person's atoms is the whole game and learn how to utilize that and work because most people – think we're supposed to merge into this one big glom of icky and you, you're sucking up their their crap like a vacuum cleaner and then you're supposed to figure out how to discharge that but if you don't suck that up to begin with you're going to be a much better person a much better friend a much better uh at, at being in the world and you'll come out of every interaction alive because you haven't taken on their stuff and so i teach people how to not do that I mean, that I'm sounds about as valuable as a lesson as we can learn as people, right? Because <laughs> yes, <laughs> we don't, and I mean that because we don't often think about what we're taking on, or no. nor do or, or how we're taking it on. There you go. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and so that's that's unspokenboundaries.com, and then yes. they can find more uh, about you and the work that you do as well at Merle Yo. So I'm going to spell that uh, Amazon Merle. 
E-R-L-E-Y-O-S-T as in Tom. So MerleYost.com. And what can they find there, sir? Well, a lot. It's a massive website. It's been up there for probably close to 20 years. Uh, and I've done a lot of things. Uh, but it, it was originally about promoting my psychotherapy practice. Uh, I have a very minimal practice point. I mostly do intensives for people. They come and see me for five days, and we go for 10 hours over five days, and we accomplish a lot very quickly. Uh, but uh, all my books, I've published six books. I've been in numerous documentaries and TV shows, and uh, it's all on there. And then there's a huge amount of information about men who are sexually abused as children, buying gay men who are heterosexually married, and just a whole host of other topics that I've uh, taken time to write about and publish. So. Gotcha. Okay. And yeah, I mean, as you said, six books. I, I believe that you are, uh, when we spoke before, you said you're about to start writing your seventh or you are writing your seventh? I've just started writing my seventh book, which will be my memoir. I'm going to tell my story. Oh, well, there you go. Well, don't release it before we record this. <laughs> oh, no, it'll okay. be a while. Okay, good, good. Just make it sure, because <laughs> God damn it. Uh, well, let's, let's go back to childhood then. Um, and I'm going to, you know, we, we spoke before this and a, a note I took was, uh, that you were raised in, uh, in a central cult is, is basically kind of how, can you tell us what you mean by that and, and what, what that was like growing up and, and, and what the cult was? Sure. Uh, well, it's not exactly what people think of when they think of a cult, uh, because this was strictly confined to my family. And I use the word cult because there's no other real word to describe growing up in a very isolated experience. We weren't allowed to have friends. We, we didn't really socialize out in the world. A uh, big chunk of my childhood was spent on remote farms in the middle of nowhere where there were no neighbors. Uh, were you homeschooled? Uh, no. Because mm -hmm. uh, both my parents worked, so that really wasn't, a, and they couldn't have done it anyway. Um, and so the problem is, is that my mother believed that she sat on the right hand of God and, uh, Jesus was on the left and that she ruled the world. And we were indoctrinated with this belief system and all of the ancillary stuff around that, uh, from my earliest memories. And so we got daily misses from God and we all had angels as protectors and, it was quite an elaborate fantasy. I'll talk about it a lot more in the book. <laughs> and um, and actually, I just published uh, on. I just started a Substack oh. uh, channel. Okay, uh, Merle Yost. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I published a paper that I wrote in graduate school, which was a three generation autobiography uh, of your opposite sex parents from your opposite sex parents' perspective. And so I tell her story. <laughs> When when did she come to the realization that she was seated at the side of God, the other side, whatever side Jesus wasn't on? It was from far back as I can remember. I mean, I just remember being indoctrinated in this from the very beginning. So uh, I, it's as a therapist, it's really hard to diagnose your own parents, <laughs> and God knows you spend enough time trying. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> but somewhere in between dissociative identity disorder, what people would think of as multiple personalities, uh, and schizophrenia, it's somewhere on that spectrum. And so she lived in this other universe in her head, uh, and, uh, and we got to be the result of that. The problem was we were incredibly isolated. 
as a consequence, because we weren't allowed to have, we were told if we told anybody who we really were, we'd be killed. Uh, and so it was all a fear base to keep this all within the family. And uh, so that then led to uh, my father, uh, who uh, was a quite a violent, angry man. Uh, we were all terrified of him. Uh, and eventually, I don't know how much detail to go into. I could go on for hours. Uh, but my brother was a, the heir apparent to my mother ruling the world. And when he fell out of favor, because he's not the brightest bulb in the world, I suddenly became the, the, the chosen one. And my father had battled with my brother for my mother's affection and attention. And then when I became the centerpiece, then I got the, the attacks. And that's when he crawled into my bed in the middle of the night and started face fucking me on a regular basis. And this little nine year old boy who was completely overwhelmed and dissociated by this experience. Uh, Nine? And then he was also physically violent as well. So and f- physically violent to all of you, or just to you? Uh, no, mostly my brother and I. My sister, my twin sister, was his favorite. So, <laughs> how long did that abuse? Was that just a one-time three, occurrence, or three years? <sighs> God, that's horrible. It was, it, it changed the absolute course of my life on every level. I mean, I was so dissociated and had no idea. And uh, I was, plus, for me, it was just because I couldn't remember what happened initially. Uh, I just knew that something was wrong. And the next morning when I went to get on the school bus, I couldn't get on. I got nauseous. And this went on for a week or two before they forced me back to school. And I just had all these feelings going on inside of me that I didn't know what to do with or how to explain. And and being, it was just, it was really awful. And I had, it's called occluded memory is the clinical term, but it's called repressed memories. That's how I survived. So you just, Uh, it was the layman way to say it, I guess, is you just kind of took that experience and buried it so that you did not have to deal with it, which is right. But I had all the, the symptoms. And then so, uh, push ahead to 1995 when I was a therapist and I went to train something, a new modality called EMDR, mm-hmm. which is a really incredible method of processing trauma really fast. And uh, in the first training, in the first day, the end of the first day, they had us practice what we'd learned and they wanted us to pick some small target uh, that we would... Uh, uh, focus on. So they didn't want to open up a huge can of worms. This was brand new. We didn't have all the tools and all the understanding. And so I picked the one thing that the only thing I could think of was that I had a fear of tall buildings. I'd look up at a tall building and I'd just about pass out. Okay. Which made no sense. We now know that phobias are usually a cover for trauma. I yeah, know that. That makes sense. <laughs> and, uh, so we started doing the EMDR, and about 30 seconds into it, I went, uh, my head went back, a cock went down my throat, and I completely dissociated. So the memory started emerging. So, so that was the first time that you had remembered that occurring since it occurred? Yes. Oh, that had... Even, wh- from nine years old to 32. <laughs> how, how does one... Obviously, you're not going to process all of that there. What is it like no. yeah, to remember something so 
horrendous that here to that point um, you had repressed. And so it's like it hadn't happened. Well, yeah, on the on a conscious level, it clearly hadn't, though I had all the symptomology of somebody who'd been sexually abused. All my therapists had mentioned it, but there was no memory. I was literally, it was occluded. Yeah. And you, it, it that stopped, you said it was three years, so you were about 12 years old when that stopped. And I believe you said mm -hmm. that's around the time that you moved to Tucson. Yes, we moved to Arizona, and my father magically turned into a different person. So the violence it, stopped. Really? He turned into this kind of gentle guy and uh, the abuse all stopped. And uh, That's crazy. Uh, are you familiar with astrocartography? Uh, not today, no. <laughs> no, I don't, well, I don't know what that dead. means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I got it. I got yeah. it. Uh, astrocartography is where uh, astrologists will uh, put your chart on the globe. And they look at where the lines on your oh. chart run to the globe. And often, and I've seen this in my own life, when I move to a different area, I can see a different change in my personality and what's happening. And so I, my best guess is that, that his chart went through Tucson in a different way than it did in the backwoods of Missouri. And that uh, it just utterly changed who he was. Well, I mean, I'm glad that the, obviously glad that the abuse stopped. And then obviously that the violence and, and all of that happened. Um, Brent, I need you to get me a, a globe and a ruler because <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to live next. And I'm going to do that first. Uh, okay. So you're in Tucson. Thank goodness the abuse has stopped. But I know that you had said that you were completely dissociated and oh, yeah. um, you really did not have a chance. It sounds like to really develop social skills because you were so isolated. So tell us about your experience uh, in Tucson and high school. Well, that was adolescence and it was uh, the junior high school was predominantly Mexican American. And these boys were highly sexual. Uh, and so that was kind of overwhelming because any sexual energy uh, to me was just really deeply overwhelming. And uh, that was problematic. In high school, I was just this very odd creature. I mean, I had limited social skills. I was really bright. Uh, I spent, I majored in choir. I spent most of my time in the choir room. Mr. Belt, my teacher, turned out to be my surrogate father. He was the closest to a father that I ever really felt that I had. And I'm grateful to this day for him. But I was really strange. And I just didn't know I was strange. I just really, yes. <laughs> looking back, it's obvious that I was pretty odd. But, and I didn't have, I didn't understand normal interactions. Uh, at all. And you, you mentioned a twin sister. So as you transition into this, where you're, you're having the issues with the social skills, did you have a relationship at that time with your twin sister where you felt like you could lean on her as a support system or no, no, no. Okay. No, we were never close. No. All right. I mean, fraternal twins are a very different animal than identical twins. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so once you, uh, you told me, speaking of your twin sister, that you graduated from high school and at the graduation, you said your twin <laughs> sister was sobbing because it was over yes. and you were so fucking excited to get the hell out of there, right? They said, hallelujah, I'm out of here. Right, <laughs> right. And where did you go? Uh, I went to college there in Tucson, but I moved in with roommates 
and that was really the the beginning of my healing, actually, because one of my roommates was in therapy. He says, I think that maybe you would benefit from seeing my therapist. <laughs> and he was right. And uh, so I went to see her. And I remember in that very first session, I'll never forget this. Uh, we were talking and she said, you seem nervous. Are you afraid of me? I said, no. She says, what are you afraid of? And I said, what's inside of me? Wow. And I didn't even know what was inside of me, but I knew that there was a whole storm going on in there that I didn't have access to. And was that ther uh, your first therapist? Was she one of the people who said to you, you are exhibiting the symptoms of somebody who's been sexually abused? Yeah, all of them have said that mm. along the way. And so when, and so when I... Uh, when I and this all finally came to, to the surface, and I was in therapy with my therapist. I one insisted that she then get the training in EMDR because we were going to deal with this. Yeah, <laughs> and so she did, and uh, the rest is history. There you go. Uh, so you got out of college, you moved to the Bay Area, and you got a master's degree. And you said uh, around this time, and maybe I, I have my timeline off, that you jumped into the New Age movement around there. And that was actually back in Tucson. That was that in Tucson. Was, Got uh, it. Okay. I was in my early twenties uh, because it was a, a southern. It was uh, we were based in the Southern Baptist Church, which is a nightmare and uh, the hypocrisy of unbelievable levels. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I couldn't take it seriously. I just couldn't take it seriously. And so, but I but there was this part of me that that was yearning for something, and so. I stumbled across the New Age movement and jumped in with both feet. And that was really the beginning of exploring uh, these abilities. As it turned out, I'm fairly psychic, uh, some clairvoyant abilities. And so I was tuning into all of this stuff without having any idea what the hell was going on or what to do with it. And so um, it, it makes it really useful as a therapist, I might add. But... <laughs> but uh, it uh, it had its, its had its downsides too because it was merging. I was merging with everything, and so that was what when I learned about energetic boundaries via my training in Gestalt and Buddhist uh, psychology and a whole bunch of other uh, modalities that I studied and starting putting all this together, it changed everything. And at this point. Uh were you still, I mean, I knew you wanted to get the hell out of there after high school. Were you still speaking with your family? Did you have a relationship with your family? I had very little relation with my family. I did stay uh, tangentially, uh, tang tangentially, uh, uh, connected. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I hated my father and I did not know why he just, I, my skin just crawled whenever he was around. Uh, and, um, so, but I was, I, when I left, I really left. I mean, I would you know, wander by occasionally. Uh, and uh, it was funny when I uh, was, in, I ended up in a relationship when I was 20, 20, I think, uh, for 19 years. And I kept uh, threatening him. I said, well, I'll just tell, tell the family that you know everything and they can talk openly around you. Oh. <laughs> he would turn red and say, don't you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you you told me too when you when you kind of um fell out of touch with your family by choice you also had what you called and and this is a term i hear more and more uh, a wonderful family of choice uh people who yes. love you and, and enrich your life and 
you just mentioned it. You you had what you refer to as the love of your life for uh, for 19 years. You had a relationship, but you ended the relationship. Uh, I did. And there were two things that you said led to the end of the relationship. And again, this is a 19 year relationship. We understand that we're not we're not telling the whole story, right? But tell us what those two things were, because I, I thought they were really uh, telling. And and what led you to end the relationship? the The real problem was is that I had spent. 30 years plus or roughly 30 years of my life working on me and healing and dealing with all of uh, my past and, and coming into the present and clearing the dissociation and doing all these other parts. And um, he didn't. And he was unwilling to dig into his own past, which I was pretty clear he was sexually abused as well. See, one of the things that people don't tell you is that sexual abuse survivors find each other. Almost every time that I have worked with a woman who had been raped or sexually abused, I can tell you, or mostly sexually abused, the, the, the husband was as well. There's something about that dance of intimacy that they both know that brings them together. And it's just very, 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 very common. So, uh, and uh, he had an alcoholic father who I believe uh, molested both of the two youngest boys who were three brothers. Uh, but, um, and so the gulf between us became so wide that we, that we were, we weren't connecting. I mean, it just, and it, we were stuffing our feelings through eating. We were both really heavy and, all this other stuff. And I just wasn't willing to continue living that life. And he was unwilling to do the work at all. And he was such a charming guy that the therapist all liked him, but they didn't force, they didn't push him. They didn't mm. really get him to confront the real stuff going on. And I just could not take that anymore. I wasn't willing to live that life and he wasn't willing to change. I can't remember what the other one I told you. Uh, the the London you you flew to London and went to Paris. Oh, for your the story birthdays. in London. Yeah, uh, yeah. We we were twenty six hours apart in age. That's crazy. <laughs> and I'm a twin, so I was like, I. I it's I did, my another, joke was yeah. I was I was forty two before I had my own birthday. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, we flew there. Uh, and he was also very fear-based and I'm, I'm not really fear-based. I'm like, oh, let's go conquer the world and see what that happens. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we had just, it was our, my birthday. We had just, uh, we had a lovely dinner. We went to, uh, see Brandon Fraser and Cat on a hot tin roof and, and, uh, Soho. And I wanted to walk around a little bit after the show. And, uh, he says, well, we have to go back now because the subway stops at midnight to get back to the hotel. And I said, well, there are other ways to get back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he says, we have to go back now. And I just finally looked at him and said, I'm so tired of being controlled by your fear. Because he was a fear-based personality. And what was his response and to that? He stopped talking to me for three days, which he had never done before. In 19 years I, or, or however long yes, it's been. yes. He w so you would say to him, hey, hello. So you're in a room and he just would act like you weren't there or how? how yeah, he went off and did we there's, We actually did separate things for the next few days. I, I went and did things and he did things and 
And uh, he just, he just, he was so enraged at me. But I, he was a fear-based personality. And, and this had, we'd gone, had several episodes over the years of his fear taking over and becoming a problem in the relationship. Uh, and so. How often would you confront him about doing, uh, you know, using the phrase doing the work? And would he say perhaps, well, I, I am going to therapy. What, what would be your rejoinder to that? Well, I didn't push that hard. Okay. Uh, because it was his choice and, and I couldn't be his therapist and I didn't want to be his therapist. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, and he, as he said, he was in therapy. He just wasn't willing to go dig in the deep end of the pool. And his, and his therapist where he was so charming. He was a, he was a good Southern boy from Natchez, Mississippi. <laughs> I was from Natchez. Okay. Yeah. With all the Southern graces that go with that. So everybody adored him because he was a really sweet guy. But, but after all those years of work on myself and this clearing the dissociation and doing all these things, I was not the same person that came into that relationship. I was the one who changed. He didn't. So how incredibly difficult was it for you uh, to end a relationship with the love of your life? Like what type of an effect did that have on you? It gutted me. I was I was grieving for five years. It just absolutely wiped me out because I knew what I was giving up, but I also knew that this day was killing me. So I was in a lose-lose situation. And uh, I did what I could to stay connected to him, but he didn't really want to stay connected. It took me 14 years to get him to, to have closure. And that's a really interesting story. He, he was so angry. He never stopped being mad at me until... I had, I decided to leave the Bay Area. I sold my home. I closed my practice. I took a, a, a thirty-four day cruise from. I went to Mexico for for uh, for. I think that was the first trip was like two months, and then I took a cruise from San Diego to Auckland, New Zealand, for thirty-four days, Woo. and traveled. Sounds amazing. And started writing my next book, the Facing the Truth of Your Life, my last one, and. Uh, when I came back, I called him from or texted him from Hawaii and said, I'm on my way back. You don't know. I've sold everything. This may be my last time here for a very long time. It may be our last attempt to have closure. Are you willing to meet? And he said, all right. So, <laughs> so we met for dinner when I got back. And uh, we first talked about for the first hour how wonderful it was to not travel with the other one because we <laughs> did not travel well yeah we destroyed jamaica we destroyed hawaii we destroyed london and paris <laughs> we're not good at traveling and uh because again that two different styles of being in the world yeah. really really showed up when you're out in the world and then uh then he went into his hour-long litany of all the things he was still mad at me about 14 years later and finally i said oh, okay can i talk now yeah <laughs> and i just looked at him and said all i came to do was say thank you I say, we were just babies. We were 20 years old when we met, and we had a wonderful love and time. And I just wanted to say how grateful I am because we're where we are today because we raised each other. And I just said, thank you. And his jaw hit the table, and he just <laughs> looks at me. So he, he was waiting for the argument, the fight to happen. And he just softened. And, and that was the, it was one of, I think it was the last time I saw him. He died in 2020. Yeah, 2020. And uh, I'm sorry. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, neither one of us ever got into another relationship. Really? Wow. We were, we were love. It was a destined relationship. He just couldn't hold up his part of it. I love that the way that you said that, that we raised each other. Uh, because I, I think a lot of people, for whatever reasoning, they forget, hey, when you're 20, yeah, things, you don't have it together. You don't have to fuck. You're just a kid. Right. And, <laughs> oh. and yet you jump into these very intimate relationships with people and you have to learn on the go. I mean, that's what life is. Life is learning on the go. But it's such a wonderful summation of that to to have 19 years together and say you know we raised each other and thank you for for everything that you did i mean that that that's just yeah that's a wonderful thing to hear and and i'm glad that you were able to see him excuse me and have that conversation um uh, it really was a profound experience i i lost my best friend and him in that same and about a uh a, a, i don't know 50-day period and it changed the karma and then my plan had been to move to florida at that point and then everything shifted and i moved to puerto vallarta mexico for for 14 months and and began a whole nother adventure in my life so wow. uh yeah it it uh yeah it was oh i was going to say uh, jung said that our 20s and 30s are rehearsal for adulthood and <laughs> because you don't become an adult to around 42 Ooh, 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 this may I become an adult. How exciting. <laughs> oh, man. So all the jokes that people have said about adulting have not applied to me. Oh, man, I can't no, wait to be an adult. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> yeah, that Brent, who's a little bit older than me, just gave me a big thumbs down on the adult thing. So maybe I'll take that back. I don't know. Uh but, you know, that young, uh, we recorded another episode earlier today and he was, he was brought up. That dude knew what was up. I love that idea that he the did. 20s and 30s are a rehearsal for your adulthood because at least in my experience, I got to my 20s. I was like, all right, I fucking did it. I'm out of the house. I graduated college. I'm an adult. And then whatever. And then the 30s were better than my 20s. But I was like, all right. Now it's my thirties. Didn't think I would make it here. Here I am, an adult, and now here I am, forty-one, and uh, I'm wearing the same flannel shirt I've worn for fifteen years. So <laughs> I'm just hoping the rehearsal's almost over, and I'm going to go on the stage of adulthood. Um, and you know, one of the are you married? I am not married, married. No, never have been. Well, that ex that explains a lot of it. So <laughs> what does that mean about the shirt? Well, well, no marriage changed you it forces you to grow up in a certain way i see what you're saying because it mm -hmm. isn't just about you anymore right um that's true and uh, i have i'm uh i think the way i described it a couple years ago is that i i have made decisions that are selfish my whole life because i made those decisions so that i would not have to deal with certain things that uh, everybody else deals with on a day-to-day -day basis and i mean something as simple as buying a car buying a house. Mm. These are not things I was interested in doing. So I never put my life on that track. Uh, mm. And so now when people talk to me about financing or buying a car, I, I'm, I look, I don't know what they're talking about, but then I'll just start spew, spewing, you know, Beatles facts or stuff at them. And they're like, get a life, Kevin. And I'm like, yeah, well, my rehearsal's <laughs> almost over. So one, one of the important parts about being an adult, well, being a human, 
but being an adult, I want to go mm-hmm. back to the the boundaries, the importance of boundaries. Everybody says that word. It's becoming a very catch-all word. You got to put up boundaries. You got to do this. You said a very telling thing um, that you said, we want to blame other people for invading our space, but the truth is we are responsible for all of it. Can you unpack that a little bit for me, please? Sure. I mean, with the exception of violence, of course, I mean, abuse and violence, um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Abuse. Yeah. That the, if you're unable to protect yourself, there are, uh, that is their, their karma, their problem. And I have a whole stick about that we can get into as well. Uh, but yes, inter- we learn that dance of intimacy in our family. And then we take that out into the world and we assume that's how the world works. And then that's what we are looking for in a partner uh, even if it's a bad family, we unconsciously are looking for that dance because that's what we think intimacy is. And so then that we're bombed together and we create our families because we found the match to that. And it's really, really problematic. But uh, the truth is, is that we are responsible for our space, our energy, our choices, our actions. And uh, once you learn how to about energetic boundaries and how to utilize them, you stop giving you away in every interaction. We spend so much of our time worrying about how people are seeing us. And we then take on the reflection they're giving us as to who we are. So if they're mad at us, we're bad. If blah, 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 then we're that. And so when we stop taking that on and we let them be them, and have them whatever reaction they're going to have, but not take that on, it changes our entire experience of being in the world. And so, and we've also made it terrible in marriage is that we have this fantasy that two shall become as one, and they merge together. And the problem is that it kills sex. Sex excitement happens at the contact boundary. And if you're merged, there's no contact boundary. You're just glommed into this one big blob. And that just kills the relationship. And that's why so many relationships end up sexless. Wow. I guess I never thought of it that way. Um, (laughs) Well, that's the old joke, you know, comedians have told forever. I'm married. Oh, so you don't have sex, right? That's the old joke. Exactly. Uh, and that's why, because of this paradigm that you're supposed to merge and mer- and you're the only time that merging is acceptable is an infant from zero to 18 months. A parent has to be merged with them because they can't tell you what's wrong. Right. That's a good point. Yep. They- so at 18 months, the three years of age, the parent has to start withdrawing. So, so that by the age of three, the parent is completely out of there because if they're still in there intruding upon the development of the self of the child, and that's how you end up with all a lot of these characterological problems that come up, because the parent never got out of there. Yeah. And too many parents, and women especially, uh, have this baby who loves them. And it may be the first time they've ever truly felt loved in their entire life, and they don't want to let that go. And so they have a hard time pulling out and withdrawing from that child because they're empty inside. They're not, and they're using that child to feel that emptiness inside of them. And that's really bad for both parties. Wow. Yeah. Um, never thought about that way either. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, in, in sorry, the therapist in me comes. No, out. no, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I do have a question for you though. Uh, you, you you made a point, and I think everybody's experienced this, where somebody um, gets mad at you, 
And then uh-huh. your the reaction that we tend sometimes have, I know that I have this reaction often, is I, I'm bad. I did something wrong. Uh, and right. then um, you took on their viewpoint of them, of you as you. And there's no win in doing that. Is there a benefit in getting at what the reflection is, see how you're coming across and considering that and say, is this who, how I want to be in the world? Is this who I am? Blah, blah. But to take it on as your identity is always a losing hand. Why do you think we do that? Just because, because that's, that's how we were taught to by our families? Yeah, we're told we're, t- we're trained and that's how families control you. Is it what I think of you is more important than what you think of you? We're conditioned with that from the beginning. Sorry, Brenda's furiously writing that down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and you you talk about, too, in the steps, in the seven steps uh, about boundaries, you uh-huh. talk about guilt and shame. Tell me, I think people use those words interchangeably, and they're not to be used interchangeably. They're different things. So tell yeah. us the difference. Uh, step, step four is a deep dive into guilt and shame. There are two deeply introspective steps. Steps one and step four are deeply introspective of looking at your stuff. So let's talk about guilt and shame. Guilt is feeling bad about something you did, something you didn't do, feeling uh, uh, guilty. I should have said this. I shouldn't have said that. So I feel guilty about that. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. I'm a piece of shit. I'm crap. I'm worthless. I'm stupid. That is shame. Okay, gotcha. I, and I think it's really uh, important to call out the difference because, again, they are used interchangeably when they should not be. And you talk about energetic boundaries. What does that mean, to have energetic boundaries? Does it go back to what you were saying, that we're all atoms and that? that yes, or, okay. it's a, we're all energy. Everything in the world is made up of atoms. <laughs> yeah. All of it. And so we're just this big clump of atoms. And so... And if you don't understand that you literally exist inside this bubble of energy of atoms, and then uh, what you do is you just, when I'm with you, I'm just my, I'm merging with you and we're combining our atoms and it's just this big happy orgy of atoms. And, and unfortunately it just means you're absorbing all of their stuff and you're absorbing all of their stuff. Mm. And so, and then you have to discharge their stuff and deal with your stuff too, which is really not useful. So one of the things we're taught, uh, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm about to go on a tangent, but I'll try and do this shortly, but empathy and compassion, we've, we've taught people that's about merging and feeling other people's feelings. And again, you're sucking up their stuff like a vacuum cleaner. Why would I want to feel your pain and your misery? My job is not to feel it because it's rude, it's intrusive. And how many times have you gone to somebody upset and talked to them about what's going on with you and they end up falling apart and you have to take care of them? (laughs) That's merging. That's bad. And so the task of the person is to witness the other person's experience and validate their pain, validate their experience, not get in there and live it for them. We've all had those experiences. We don't need to live other people's. It's rude, it's intrusive, it's unnecessary, and it's unhealthy. Does this also kind of lead to, um, you'll have a situation where somebody comes to you uh, with a, they're just stressed out about something. They have a problem with something. And I tend to, and I think a lot of people tend to want to try to fix it right away. And the, and the, and the person yep. will say, I'm not asking for that. I, and 
you're basically saying they're saying that and our job is not to fix it it's to validate it and to yes, say i hear you i see really you. horrible yeah and it i get it that's just nobody should have to experience what you just experienced yeah just validating that the pain that they're in that must be devastating and how are you going to take care of yourself what do you need right now to to, to be better to discharge that so you aren't carrying this around right <laughs> and you're that's that's healing that's helpful very true and when I was talking about this earlier today in the earlier recording. You know, I, I used to always say that I take, it's like I take my thoughts of myself and I put it in my hands and sometimes I hand it to people and I say, will you tell me who I am or tell me what I am? Not only is that obviously very unhealthy, but it's also you're putting so much power and stress on that other person when they, one, they didn't ask for it. Two, they have no, often have no clue that the next words that come out of their mouth could destroy your day or, you know, make you walking on the sun. Smash Mouth reference. Write that down. Okay, thank you. Um, sorry, I like to point at Brent. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize that I was doing that, uh, looking for validation from others and not realizing the power I was giving them. Totally giving your power away. Yeah. And so you be very, very careful about who you do that to. I mean, we do that largely in relationships because it's such an intimacy. But again, and merger again is just a bad idea. Even in sex, you're joining. You're not merging. It's a very different experience. And you keep that contact boundary. And what you have, and <clears throat> okay, so that brings me to the topic of, of intimacy and vulnerability. Intimacy is the act of becoming vulnerable with another person. And so we do that initially, uh, ideally, in small ways. We, and vulnerability is taking the risk of exposing some part of yourself that you feel uh, could get rejected. Could make, and if you get rejected, you're probably going to feel bad. Yeah. But it's so you don't dive into the deep end of the pool <laughs> in the beginning. You do small vulnerabilities and build up as you build trust that this other person can see and hold you and and be with you and not judge you and so but too and so that's what sex is about you have to get more and more uh, vulnerable with expressing what do you really like what do you really want what are your real fantasies and trusting this person to share and hold that and maybe some way act that out or be a part of that. And that's what leads to the really incredible sex because the deeper you get into this vulnerability and this intimacy, the greater depth of the sex and you can get into, that's where tantric sex comes from. You get into these really profound deep states and it's like time stops and everything is in slow motion and it's just unbelievable. But it takes time to reach that depth of trust and vulnerability and intimacy. Say again, uh, you uh, no no no. Sorry, tell me again your how you described intimacy. It's it's the act of being vulnerable with another person. Yes. Okay. Got yes, it. it's the vulnerability leads to intimacy. Right. Okay. Um, but start small. <laughs> Do not well, dump right. it all out there, or you just flood them with all of your crap, and they're like, "Oh, I think I'm going to go take a shower now." Excuse me. <laughs> I think something else that you had said to me too about energetic boundaries is if you put your wounds out front, people will yeah, manipulate them and use them. Yes, absolutely. And that, 
do you what do you, you think your that, power away they're going to use it against you because that's what they have learned how to do and it yeah okay they're going to do what their family taught them to do and families we know are only healthy wonderful nurturing places so <laughs> that's well just yours actually your mom well just your mom because she was seated at the the left hand right hand of god no. one of the hands i don't know is yeah. god ambidextrous no. No abuse. Um, neither parent was safe. I mean, mother, by comparison, was safer than my dad. Yeah. At least I wasn't being brutally, physically brutalized or sexually abused. But she was intrusive uh, psychologically and emotionally. And I knew way too much about their sex life. She used to bitch about how disgusting it was. That he wanted her to suck his dick because that was gross. And, and how old are you? They, why were you, why was she telling you this? We had this place was boundaryless. I yeah. tell you, I mean, I knew that that they were doing anal sex, and I mean, this is way too much for an eight year old to really know or understand. I didn't. It was years later that I understood what was being said. I because I was clueless because I had no sexual education outside of the abuse itself. So, uh, it was a really strange world. Um, you know, and you're you're a therapist now. And you started going to therapy when you went to college, as you said. How, yeah. how many years of like what? Well, it's oversimplified, but how many years of the hard work uh, did you feel that you were doing in order to get to the place where you find yourself now? I did seventeen years of therapy. Mm -hmm. I also did a one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I also did a two-year professional training program program at the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco, which had a group therapy component in it and that's where i did some unbelievably profound work because they would do these psychodramas and act out stuff and it was really uh extraordinary and plus the reason was is that you do a piece of work that the, the teacher would do something with somebody then they would analyze what just happened that's that's really how to learn to be a really good therapist is to see it work and explain in the moment what you just saw and experienced but uh and I've never stopped working on myself. Uh, it's it's a lifelong journey. I mean, we when you fully heal, I think when you get to the complete end of the line, I think you die. <laughs> right. You ascend. I mean, this is this this whole experience of being in this body in this lifetime is about growing and healing and and gaining gaining great gaining a deeper awareness of yourself. I mean, who I am now, I'm 65, and I'm a completely different person than I was at 50 or 40 or 30. And uh, I really like who I've become, and, and I'm constantly undoing layers of stuff. I've spent the last year working with a pranic healer who's had a profound impact on clearing some of the abuse stuff that I could never get to. Uh, and I feel like I'm a completely different person in the world. I'm sorry, what type of healer? Pranic, P-R-A-N-I-C. What does that mean? Healing. It's a, it's a healing modality. It has Buddhist foundation. It's it's an other form of energy healing. Uh, and gotcha. it's really profound. And I've been doing weekly sessions for a year with, with a really phenomenal healer. And I tell you, I'm not the same person a year later. It's really wow. that last wall between me and the world just is gone. It's really been fascinating to watch the, the transition. I'm doing things I just didn't wouldn't do, and it's like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> it's, uh, well, all positive. And you, how long have you been a therapist? 
I was I started graduate school on my 30th birthday. And so I'm now 65. I got licensed in 1995. Okay. And you had said to me, unfortunately, therapists are not pushed to do the deep work uh, yourself. Not anymore. Tell I mean, me, tell me about that. Well, the way you learn to be a therapist, and is most of it is in your own therapy. You mean your own, you like you speaking to a therapist, going to them? For yes, ca- got it. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Because you, you, it's just like you learn how to be in the world from your parents. You learn how to be a therapist in many ways from your therapist. You learn what it's like to be vulnerable, to be on the other side of the couch, and what did they do to get you in that kind of place? And then you learn these modalities. And that's where you practice them, literally, with on you. I mean, in the Gestalt, that's I was with Gestalt therapists most of my, uh, all of my uh, psychotherapy, and with one exception, and um, and all these other, all the things that I learned really were the foundation in my psychotherapy because I knew what they, how they work from the inside out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just theoretical. Yeah, and. Now you don't you don't feel that that is the case. You're feeling, is it your experience that people are becoming therapists but are not doing the work on themselves? They're just kind of doing the academic part of it. Yeah, I mean, they give lip service to getting your own therapy. I mean, to be a licensed therapist, they want you to. You can get up to fifty hours of credit to, towards your licensure for doing fifty hours of therapy, and that's it. Was um, it like a learner's permit? So, it's like it's yeah, like exactly. learning to drive. Yeah. <laughs> And so you need, and uh, nobody gets through childhood unscathed. It was not designed that way. Uh, <laughs> what is it that Flannery O'Connor said? And I'm going to probably butcher the quote, but she said, anyone who survived childhood has enough to write about for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And what's there's a book out there that said everybody's life is worth a book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's true. It's very true. We all have our stories and, and most people discount it. They think, oh, just everybody went through this. But no, your experience is unique. And the writing of it gives you such profound insight into looking at it. Because you have to step back in the third person and look at what happened to you. You Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I get it now. And it's it's so interesting (laughs) because it's like, oh, I thought I understood it. But now I put it into different words. And it led my brain to think about it different, to look at it a different way. It's a really, really power. I mean, fucking powerful tool, tool, uh, to write. Um, so unspokenboundaries.com. So if, if somebody is interested in the, in the, uh, the workshop that you're offering, they would go there to unspoken boundaries. And then yes, it's pretty evident how to log in or sign up. Just, they can sign up and, uh, it's all self. It's a video on demand. You can do it at your own pace. Uh, and take your time. There are people who are taking deep dives in step one and, and, uh, you, you get out of it, what you choose to put into it and how deep you want to go. Uh, and the deeper you go, the more you're going to get out of it. Sure. Uh, but it, there, it is really a walk through your childhood to really look at how you became you. Yeah. And most of us have never stopped to think about how we became us. We just assume this is what it is. And we've all, we've all been trained, we've all been programmed by our families to be a particular way or our response to their programming. So you have to step back and look at the programming to really understand who you are. And it, it's, it, it's true. And one, that's scary to do. 
that's that's very scary. I think for anybody, maybe it, it can it be. be also. There's a, it's a, yeah, yeah. Most families are not particularly healthy, sadly enough, uh, because we don't. You have to start from health in order to bring health. <laughs> and most people get married, start having kids long before they're an adult, and so they're just passing on what they got trained to do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then uh, what was the name of your latest book? Facing the truth of your life. It's also a lovely walk through your life and say how I became me. Uh, I take on a lot of sacred cows that I don't believe in forgiveness. I don't believe in being a victim. Uh, and I take those apart in the book. The short version of that is that we've all been victimized. Nobody gets through this unscathed. Whether it's childhood, adulthood, work, college, life, marriage, it's all, we all get victimized. But to live as a victim is a dead end. There's no recovery. And so you have to move to having been victimized and do the healing by taking back all of your power. Stop giving that person the power to make you feel bad, to make you feel worthless, to make you feel whatever it is that they made you feel. Because as long as you allow them to do that, you're staying a victim. And I think that people probably don't even realize, um, again, I think we've hit this point a couple times in the conversation, they don't realize that they're giving their power away. No, they don't. And we just were so programmed to make what other people think of us who we are. Mm. Yeah, And that's, that's just like... Lay down, okay, I'm Bambi, kill me now. So it's like, there's just no payoff in it, but that's how families control children. And so as adults, how many, they're so afraid. I mean, how many guys I know who never come out to their family because they're afraid they're going to be rejected. But my corollary to that is the gift is finding out if they love you for you or for who they want you to be. Mm. And if they don't love you for you, then they don't belong being your family. Going back, as you said, the family of choice who've loved and nurtured you. Yes. Yeah. And I have a wonderful people who love me and who there when I, I picked up the phone last night because I've been isolated here for five days and I was going crazy. And I finally got outside to walk and walked for six miles last night. It was glorious. And, uh, uh, and I had people calling me back and saying, what, what do you need? Yeah. So that's that's what family is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just needed to talk to another human being and I needed to to say I'm going crazy here staring at the four walls and yeah. and and they were wonderful and and I'm very grateful for those people and I would do do the same for them. So And I think that we are all I won't, I don't want to say all. Most people are very lucky to have that uh, in some form or another in their life. And it's really kind of the treasure of life stories and, and the people, the, your family, whomever that may be, uh, are kind of the, the friends and family. Um, you know, Merle, you, you've shared some pretty difficult stories. Um, very horrendous. Uh, I commend you for sharing those. I really do. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing this and, and talking about the work that you, uh, have been doing for the past 35 years, uh, unspokenboundaries.com um, and MerleYost.com. And we have covered a lot, but as we're wrapping up today, is there anything else that you want to make sure to say before we close? 
I think way too many people live in despair. And I think it's because they give their power away to all the people around them, whether it be their boss, their spouse, their family, their siblings, their friends, because they're so ashamed of who they are on the inside because of all that programming that I'm not good enough, I'm stupid, I'm whatever. And life is too short. Face the pain. Find somebody to help you walk through that. Claim your life and live a life that's worth living for you, not for everybody else, but for you. And that will profoundly change your experience of you and of being in the world. And it's well worth the pain and the effort to get there. Well, I don't think I could have said that better. Uh, but it's a good thing to hear as I'm ending my rehearsal for adulthood. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, but in ser all seriousness, Merle, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your story. Very much appreciated. And here's hoping that that fucking rain stops and you can get some good, good walks in. Indeed. Thank you. Yes. I will go ahead and end uh, the show the way I always do, which is a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, even with ourselves. There is always room for kindness and grace, no matter the situation. And we'll see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.